Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Who Has Invented Our Enmity? Ecumenical Generosity for World Communion Sunday. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 7th, 2012. In his book that deserves a wide readership, Exploring Protestant Traditions, my good friend David Bushart explores the distinctives of eight Christian traditions. He begins his book with an instructive story. When Bushart was about 10 years old, he had a talk with his mother, the gist of which was that whereas his buddies were Catholic, Presbyterian, and Methodist, his mother described his own family as, quote-unquote, just Christians. That description satisfied him in some important ways for some time. But later, he began to observe a troubling pattern. Nearly every Christian tradition tried to occupy an ecclesiastical or spiritual high ground as the genuine descendants of Jesus in the New Testament church. Unlike, of course, all those other imposters. The Jesus movement fragmented early on, in about 20 years to be precise. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, written about the year 55 AD, describes deep divisions in the church there. There were even earlier precedents for such one-upmanship. James and John offended the other ten apostles by asking Jesus for positions of glory on the death walk to Jerusalem, they argued about who was the greatest. And one time they tried to stop an anonymous healer because they complained, he's not one of us. This Christian superiority complex is endemic. The Eastern Orthodox churches confess that they alone are the one true Church of Christ on earth. Catholics have claimed that outside the church, there's no salvation. One of the earliest and most colorful expressions of this Catholic claim comes from Cyprian in the 3rd century, Bishop of Carthage in North Africa, who once wrote that you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And on November 18, in the year 1302, Pope Boniface VIII left no doubt in the matter when in his papal bull, Unum Sanctum, he wrote, We declare, say, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Whereas the Orthodox and Catholic traditions place the Church above the Bible and strictly mediate its interpretation, the Protestant Reformation, with Bibles newly translated into the common vernacular of everyday people, placed the Bible directly into the hands of individual believers to read for themselves, thus placing the scriptures, that is, their own interpretation of it, over the church. This revolutionized the role of the Bible in the church. And it also created new problems, one of which is the Protestant inclination to radical individualism and sectarian splintering into endless new denominations. 
each one of which believing that it parses the truth better than everyone else. The Orthodox scholar George Florosky thus called this Protestant view of Scripture the sin of the Reformation. In his poem to a Siberian woodsman, the poet and farmer Wendell Berry laments the deep distrust between fellow human beings during the Cold War era. In his own Soviet neighbor, he recognizes his own very self. The poem's a little bit long, but it bears quoting in full on this World Communion Sunday. Wendell Berry to a Siberian woodsman. You lean at ease in your warm house at night after supper, listening to your daughter play the accordion. You smile with the pleasure of a man confident in his hands, resting after a long day of labor in the forest, the cry of the saw in your head, and the vision of coming home to rest. Your daughter's face is clear in the joy of hearing her own music. Her fingers live on the keys like people familiar with the land they were born in. And you sit at the dinner table late into the night with your son, tying the bright flies that will lead you along the forest streams. Over you, as your hands work, is the dream of still pools. Over you is the dream of your silence while the east brightens, birds waking close by in the trees. I have thought of you stepping out of your doorway at dawn, your son in your tracks. You go in under the overarching green branches of the forest whose ways, strange to me, are well known to you as the sound of your own voice or the silence that lies around you now that you have ceased to speak. And soon the voice of the stream rises ahead of you and you take the path beside it. I have thought of the sun breaking pale through the mists over you as you come to the pool where you will fish and of the mist drifting over the water, and of the cast fly resting light on the face of the pool. And I am here in Kentucky, in the place I have made myself in the world. I sit on my porch above the river that flows muddy and slow along the feet of the trees. I hear the voices of the wren and the yellow-throated warbler whose songs pass near the windows and over the roof. In my house, my daughter learns the womanhood of her mother. My son is at play, pretending to be the man he believes I am. I am the outbreathing of this ground. My words are its words, as the wren's song is its song. Who has invented our enmity? Who has prescribed us hatred of each other? Who has armed us against each other with the death of the world? Who has appointed me such anger that I should desire the burning of your house or the destruction of your children? Who has appointed such anger to you? Who has let loose the thought that we should oppose each other with the ruin of forests and rivers and the silence of the birds? Who has said to us that the voices of my land shall be strange to you? in the voices of your land strange to me. Who has imagined that I would destroy myself in order to destroy you, 
or that I could improve myself by destroying you? Who has imagined that your death could be negligible to me now that I have seen these pictures in a magazine of your face? Who has imagined that I would not speak familiarly with you, or laugh with you, or visit in your house and go to work with you in the forest? And now one of the ideas of my place will be that you would gladly talk and visit and work with me. I sit in the shade of the trees of the land I was born in. As they are native, I am native, and I hold to this place as carefully as they hold to it. I do not see the national flag flying from the staff of the sycamore, or any decree of the government written on the leaves of the walnut, nor has the elm tree bowed before any monuments or sworn the oath of allegiance. They have not declared to whom they stand in welcome. In the thought of you, I imagine myself free of the weapons and the official hates that I have borne on my back like a hump. And in the thought of myself, I imagine you free of weapons and official hates. So that if we should meet, we would not go by each other looking at the ground like slaves sullen under their burdens but would stand clear in the gaze of each other. There is no government so worthy as your son who fishes with you in silence beside the forest pool. There is no national glory so comely as your daughter whose hands have learned a music and go their own way on the keys. And there's no national glory so comely as my daughter who dances and sings and in this, the brightness of my house. There's no government so worthy as my son who laughs as he comes up the path from the river in the evening for joy. And we Christians might fill in our own blanks. There is no church so pure or perfect World Communion Sunday affords us an opportunity to confess our propensity to exclude people who are different from us. In the words of Mark 9:38, he was not one of us. In his book, Bushhart recommends what he calls theological hospitality. Instead of defaulting to our insecurities about those whom we find strange or fringe, to ignorance, fear, and what he so aptly describes as sincere yet uninformed stereotypes of others, we do well to celebrate the considerable diversity that exists both within and among our Christian traditions. After all, he observes, one of the marks of a cult is enforced conformity. Whereas authentic Christianity celebrates genuine diversity, along with our many continuities and commonalities. World Communion Sunday. For books this week, I review Wendell Berry. It's a book of poems called Leavings. Berkeley, Counterpoint Press, 2010. It's 132 pages long. Wendell Berry was born in 1934 to a family that has farmed Kentucky land for five generations. After studies and travel took him to the University of Kentucky, 
Stanford, France, Italy, and the Bronx. Way back in 1965, he bought his own farm near the place of his birth. He's been tilling the earth and churning out books ever since. Over 50 books of poetry, novels, essays, and short stories have earned Wendelberry numerous awards as one of the leading truth-tellers of our day. Except for his comprehensive book, Collected Poems, from 2012, the present book, Leavings, is Barry's most recent collection of poetry. Readers will find here the same sort of poems that have characterized his work for 50 years. Lament, outrage, prayers, love, gratitude, expositions on his dreams, letters to his friends, and a pronounced localism convinced of the power of place. Now almost 80, a number of poems reflect on his getting older. In that sense, there are no surprises. He has stayed true to a consistent vision. After 30 pages of occasional poems, the rest of this book is comprised of his Sabbath poems from the year 2005 to 2008. These are a series of poems that Barry started writing long ago based upon his Sunday walks on his farm. In fact, these take up three quarters of the book. I'll only close with one of my several favorite poems from this book, Leavings. It's called Questionnaire, and in it, Barry poses five questions. Number one, how much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please name your preferred poisons. Number two, for the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evil and acts of hatred. Number three, what sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. Number four, in the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces the mountains, rivers, towns, farms you could most readily do without. Number five, state briefly the ideas, ideals, or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. Here we see Barry the poet as a man who prefers what he calls the world made without hands to industrial humanity, which he consigns to an alien species with a death, death wish. And so with hard-hitting verse, he asks us very pointed questions about what it means to be a whole human being in a broken world. Wendell Berry, the title of the book, Leavings, from 2010. For movies this week, I review Blue Like Jazz, from the year 2012. 
Blue Like Jazz is a movie version of a memoir of the same title, the book having been published in 2003, which was a New York Times bestseller and popular among young adults, so-called postmoderns, in the emergent church crowd. Donald Miller, born in 1971, is the author of that book, co-writer of this movie, and even the main character in the movie, which roughly follows his real life. Don Miller grew up in Texas, then moved to Portland, and audited classes at the famously godless Reed College, which experiences form the basis of both the book and the movie. In the movie, Miller flees his Texas Baptistic background, a hobo dad and a kooky Christian mom who gets pregnant by the youth pastor. The film follows his personal crisis at Reed College where, as one classmate told him, his Christianity represented a whole new level of despicable. Reed doesn't get a free pass either, though and is the object of some good satire about its own prestige pyramid. The plot in this movie is simple, and the characters are earnest stereotypes. But the movie could still provoke good discussions about important questions, about just what it means to be authentically Christian. Blue Like Jazz And finally this week, we've posted a poem by David White. The title of the poem, The Opening of Eyes. That day I saw beneath dark clouds the passing light over the water, and I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I had before, life is no passing memory of what has been nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven and finding himself astonished, opened at last, fallen in love with solid ground. David White, The Opening of Eyes. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 7th, 2012, World Communion Sunday. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.